The following audio is from a sermon series entitled King Jesus, studying the life and work of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. If you could turn your Bibles, open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. We are here just a few weeks into our series on Mark. We're going to be studying this gospel according to Mark. It's going to be over a year, probably about a year and a half through this gospel account, the shortest of all gospels. And so far that we've, we're learning that Jesus isn't like you think he is. Jesus doesn't behave the way you think he should. Jesus is unique. He's special. Mark has said, Mark has given him a few labels already. He said he's the Messiah, said he's the son of God, that God has called him his son in whom he was well pleased, that he's been sent to this earth from heaven, from God, from the Trinity. He's been sent here to preach a gospel of the kingdom so that people would repent. That means they would turn from their old way of living and they would embrace this new king and believe this gospel. That's why he's here. He's ushering a new world order. He's ushering in a new kingdom, a new dominion. What we're beginning to see is that Jesus, as he came proclaiming this great gospel of the kingdom, he was more than just a great teacher. He was a great teacher, though. Many said that he was a teacher that possessed real authority. People were blown away that he, he didn't just, you know, he lived what he taught, right? He had some power behind his teaching that was compelling, something like they had never seen before. People were shocked by how he spoke things, the way he spoke things, but also what was truly amazing was how his life depicted the message that he declared, right? And and a lot of people get really fuzzy and they don't like it when you, you know, the gospel is a message. It is the good news of something that has happened. God loves sinners and he sent his son to die for sinners so that we could have new life in him. That's the gospel. And people, because we cherish that news, they get really nervous when people say stuff like, well, why don't you live the gospel? Well, living the, that's a message to be told. How do you live it? Well, Jesus did Jesus is the gospel incarnated. He is the good news of salvation. Everything about the gospel is incarnated, puts on flesh in Christ. See, last week we saw uh, Jesus speak words of healing over leprosy, right? That's good gospel news. He says, you can be forgiven. That's good gospel news, right? But then he doesn't just stop there. He reaches out and he touches the man, right? And he gets healed from Leprosy, that's the gospel incarnated. That's a visual depiction of the good news of the gospel. It's the gospel lived out. And what we begin to see is that Jesus' words tell us the gospel content, what's in the gospel, what is the gospel, but Jesus' actions depict for us the gospel power. It's like, you can say it all you want, but until it gets, until people can see it in your life, they're not really going to understand the gospel. A missionary called Leslie Newbigin, he says that the church, the body, the community of Christ is the apologetic and the hermeneutic of the gospel. What does that mean? 
That means unbelievers won't understand the message of the gospel until they see it lived out in a community where grace is actually happening. What does that look like in real life? And that means for believers, we're not going to understand the gospel until we see it lived out in everyday life. That we, Something about us, we can say, yeah, I get it when it's on page and we hear the content of the gospel. But something about it we don't get down deep in our hearts until we experience it in community and on mission with God. Listen to this uh, quote from Rowan Williams. He's, uh, he was the Arch, Archbishop of Canterbury. Yes, that's a real thing. Uh, he's an Anglican bishop in Cambridge. Listen to this. Listen to this quote I read this week in my Lenten devotional on Mark. The point of the gospel is that we should encounter, encounter, they're a reality alarmingly beyond human expectation and human capacity. So in the gospel, we're going to encounter something way bigger than us. And through this encounter, we should be changed bit by bit into the sort of person who can actually understand what is being asked from us and what has been made possible for us in the life and death and rising of Jesus. Now, there is a lot in that statement, and I love it, and I wanted to just steal it and say it in my own words, but I said, no, I need to put it up on the screen, and I want us and I want us to kind of go through it a little bit and think about it a little bit today. That the gospel is a message to be believed, but the point of the gospel is that we should encounter a reality that's beyond human expectation. That there's something above human. There's something better than what we've experienced. There's something better than our human performance and our human efforts and our, all of our attempts at being made right with God. There's something better there. But, and through this encounter, we'll, we're going to be changed. See, the gospel, it comes into us. It's good news about what God has done, but the gospel also has a power that is, if you believe the gospel, it is changing you bit by bit into the image of Jesus, or like this, into the sort of person who can actually understand what is asked from us and what has been made possible for us in the life and death and rising of Jesus. That the gospel, Tim Keller has said, the gospel is like a kiddie pool that kids can play in, right? You can get in there and you can wade in and you can splash around, but the gospel, if you keep going into it, it's like the deepest ocean, right? Elephants can swim in it. That it's something that you enter in, it's very simple. Jesus died for sinners, but as you go deeper and deeper and deeper into it, you realize that it's so much deeper than you ever thought possible than you ever imagined. And today, we're going to see this powerfully and poignantly displayed in these few short verses here in Mark. Jesus is that power. He is that reality. Jesus is the gospel incarnated. He lives and acts in such a way that you cannot understand what he is doing if you don't understand the gospel. And thankfully, after putting the gospel on display and thoroughly confusing the people who are watching him, Jesus clarifies his lifestyle by speaking gospel truth. All right, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to say there's two things here. We have gospel truth, gospel content, gospel proclamation, and we have gospel living. We have acts of service. We have a way of living that shows the world something's different about that person. Okay, that there's a, a changed heart that's happened because of the gospel truth. I believe that today we're going to see, we're going to begin to see why Jesus got himself killed. The showdown, 
right, is beginning to unravel. You're beginning to see Jesus has enemies and people are against him and why they're against him. Why was Jesus and why is Jesus such a polarizing figure? Today, we're going to see why people have such strong reactions, positively and negatively, to the real Jesus and his message. Some of you, I hate to say this, will hate it. You're going to get angry and you're cursing. But some of you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, will love it and you'll spend the rest of your life walking with him, learning of him, and living with him in his family. Now, we're going to dig into this section of scripture today. Let's take a look at this man who changed the world, this Jesus of Nazareth. Let's look at him in verse 13. We're going to study four verses today. Jesus, he went out again beside the sea, that's the Sea of Galilee, and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. Jesus has been preaching and teaching in Capernaum and great crowds have been following him. We've seen that over the past few weeks. He was popular. He was a miracle worker. He was doing signs and wonders. So people wanted in on the action. They wanted to know what he would do next. This guy's popular. Let's see what he's doing. He's attractional. But what we've seen week in and week out is Jesus absolutely was not into the crowds. That didn't mean he didn't love them. He did love them. But Jesus wasn't a believer that bigger was better. He didn't judge success by how big of a crowd he gathered. We see over and over in how Jesus would pull away from the crowd, how he would tell people, don't tell people that I healed you. He would squash those things and he would pull away from the crowd and spend time alone with God, his father, and spend time alone with his disciples. We said it last week that um, Mark always speaks negatively of the crowds. The crowds are people who block others from getting to Jesus in the gospel of Mark. And today, Jesus, uh, he's kind of pulled away for that for a little while, and now he's gonna step back up and step into his public preaching ministry, and like usual, he gets out there, he starts preaching, and a large crowd forms around him. Look at verse 14. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. All right. Once again, Jesus preaches. A large crowd forms. But then what does it say? Jesus passes by. Once again, Jesus doesn't stick around for long. He, a crowd forms. He teaches for a little bit. But then he passes by. He's walking all along a road that leads by the Sea of Galilee. And he sees this man sitting there, Levi. And if you want to know who Levi is, eventually Levi is going to be Matthew, right? He's going to get his name changed. He's going to write one of the gospel accounts that we have. And he sees this man, Levi, sitting at his tax collection booth. And he says to him, follow me. And Levi gets up, closes the booth, and follows Jesus. Now, there's a lot of things that we need to know about this. We need to see some significance here. Um, I mean, all of us, we see tax collector, and immediately, right, we, we might shudder just a little bit. But it was even worse uh, in Jesus' day and age that a tax collector... Uh, let me before I, let me back up one, one before I before I go into what a tax collector is. First off, I want to see this. Jesus leaves the crowd and follows the one. Later on, he, he talks about leaving the ninety-nine sheep and going after the one. Jesus here does exactly that. 
When Jesus commands Levi to follow him, the Greek word here is akolotheo. And it literally means to accept and follow the leadership, command, or guidance of someone. So when he says, follow me, he's literally saying, come under me, come behind me, let me be your leader, let me be your commander, obey me now. And Math Levi drops everything and he begins to follow Jesus Christ. This is what, dis- what being a disciple of Jesus really means. You follow him, you walk with him, you obey him. He's your commander, he's your leader. And in the gospels, this word is only used of Jesus' disciples. It's never used of the crowds. And the crowds follow Jesus. He would preach and they'd go find him wherever he's at. But this word here is never used of the crowds. It's only used of believers, of those who have dropped everything and they're disciples of Jesus. Mark, again here, is showing us this is what faith looks like. Many in our culture Oh, I believe in Jesus, or I trust in Jesus. Oh, I know Jesus. Oh, I love Jesus. Mark is showing us here, being a Christian, being a disciple is about following him. It's about being on his mission. It's about walking in his dust, being behind him, obeying him, listening to him, having a relationship with him. You follow him, you walk with him, you obey him. Those whom Jesus calls, follow Those who are saved by Jesus walk with Jesus. Belief is far more than a mental assent or a a nod to Jesus. It's far more than an emotional connection with Jesus. To be a disciple means to follow Jesus. Those who are saved by Jesus walk with him, live with him, and what we're going to see shortly, they take Jesus home with them. Mark wants us to be perfectly clear. Christianity is about far more than a nod to Jesus. To be a Christian is to be a disciple, which is to follow Jesus in all of life. I like the way Acts 29 pastor Jeff Vanderstelt says it. He says this, being a disciple of Jesus is increasingly submitting all of life to the empowering presence and lordship of Jesus. Listen to that. Increasingly submitting all of life to the empowering presence and the lordship of Jesus. What does that mean? It's a process. What you're going to see in the disciples, they all make a decision to follow Jesus, but they don't go home and go back to their life. Glad I got that taken care of. That it's this increasingly, uh, it's, it's a submitting of their lives to Jesus that's done over and over and over in more areas. It's as if walking with Jesus every day, Jesus pokes at something and goes, we need to talk about that now. And they're like, oh, and they submit that aspect of their life to Jesus. And then a week later, a month later, Jesus says, okay, we need to talk about how you're dealing with your finances. Oh, and then they learn to submit that to Jesus. And then a few months later, we need to talk about how you're dealing with these types of people. Oh, right. Over and over and over. This is the life of a Christian. There's a moment where you become a Christian. You go from dead in dead to new life in Christ, but then being a disciple is about following in his footstep and increasingly submitting all of our life to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to follow Jesus. That's discipleship. Now, what else do we need to see here? The second thing I need to see, I already alluded to it. We need to know a little bit of a backstory here to Levi. We need to understand what does it mean that he was a tax collector, Right? Now, if you know anything about this day and age, Israel was under Roman occupation or Roman rule, 
right? They were subjugated, okay? And there was two types of taxes to be, a, to be inside of Rome, right? There's two, t- or under uh, Roman rule, there was two types of taxes. There was a state and a poll tax, and that the Romans took, right off the top, everything you made, right? We get that. But then there was this other tax, and it was a tax on merchandise, and it was kind of like, um, except it was a lot more expensive, it was kind of like a, a toll, like you go from here to Chicago, I think if you take 80, whatever, 80, and you're going to pay those tolls, right? And it used to be like 50 cents, now it's like an arm and a leg, right? It's like 250 every toll. Well, it was the same thing going on there, but the Romans, what they would do is they would hire out Jews, okay? But not good Jews, because a good Jew couldn't have any dealing with Gentiles, okay? So they would hire out these kind of traitors, to, to, the, to, to, the, to Israel, okay? They would hire out these traders, and this is what they said. You set up your booth along this popular trade route. You tax anything that comes in. You can tax, I mean, right, you, you get taxed on, on axles. You get taxed, they probably got taxed on how many legs the donkey had, right, and what they were carrying, and all this kind of stuff was going in, right? Anything you want to tax, you can tax. But here's the deal. We want, let's just, I'm going to just do some figures. We want $1,000 a tax coming from you every year. They say, okay, anything they could raise, anything these tax collectors could raise above that set amount, $1,000, they could keep. So they were literally extortionists. They would tax anything and everything they could, their own countrymen, right? They would tax them as they're coming in and out uh, along the Sea of Galilee. So tax collectors were absolutely hated. They were crooked. They were extortionists. Listen to this. The Jewish Talmud, which is written later, but the Jewish Talmud allowed Jews to lie to tax collectors. Right? Thou shalt not lie, except to the tax collector. Because they were so crooked, they, you, they could smuggle, right? I don't know where they're putting things, right? But they're hiding things as they're entering in, right? They're trying to hide things. It allowed them to lie to tax collectors. Listen, a tax collector could not, could not be a judge. They, they couldn't testify in court. They were considered liars. They were hated by their countrymen. They were traitors. They were banned from the synagogue. They couldn't even go to the synagogue. They were completely, they were just, they were sinners. They were outcasts but they were rich. They traded wealth for solidarity to their country, right? And to their God. They wanted money over all things. Now, I want you, if we could build this out a little bit, just what if, right? Just think about if, if we were, if in the United States of America, we got taken over by some other country and we're under their rule and you've got somebody in your that's an American, that's in your town, that's in your city, and they're working with the other government, right? They're traitors to their own kind, and they're extorting you, and they're knocking on your door, literally. They could knock on your door, they could sit by the, they could, go, they could approach you at any time and demand a tax from you. At any time, they could do it. Just think about the hatred that you would have for those people. Think about the animosity in your heart. That's what's going on here. People despised tax collectors because they were so wicked and so cruel. And Jesus, preaching the gospel to a large crowd, leaves them 
walks up to this man's booth and says, Levi, follow me. To call this man, to say, come be my disciple. Jesus gives this crooked man faith. Jesus changes this crooked man's heart. He gives Levi the eyes to see him with, to see Jesus as the Savior, a mind to know him, and a heart to love him, and the will to follow him. Jesus later says to his disciples in John 15, he says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. Do you see this? This is how Jesus changes people. Jesus chooses them. This is how he saves people. Jesus comes to them. He walks up to their booth and he says, come follow me to a wicked and notorious sinner. He chooses them. He reveals himself to them. It's 100% Jesus' work. And then Levi does what every awakened sinner does. Every sinner that has eyes to see, the eyes of faith, to see who Jesus is and what he's done. Levi does what? Levi drops everything and follows Jesus. But what happens next? Flips the script on the traditional redemption story or Jesus saves testimony. Typically somebody, no matter what their lifestyle is, it could be they're alcoholics, it could be drug addiction, it could be sex addiction, it could be just really upstanding moral citizen, don't need Jesus, but when they come to Jesus Christ and their life changed, the traditional story is, and then they left everything and they followed Jesus and they never went back to those types of friends and those type of lifestyle, and now I've been a good, moral, upright person my whole life and I haven't had a drink of alcohol or I haven't smoked another cigarette or I haven't cussed another cuss word and I'm just, and it's just complete moral reform. And many times, that's what baptism testimonies are, right? Many times, that's what redemption video, it's kind of like that, like this story. I came to Jesus, and then everything changed, and I left all those wicked people behind, and I'm a new person now, and I'm a good guy. But what happens next isn't like that. Jesus chose to reveal himself to a sinner, not just a good old boy sinner, but a notorious sinner, a man with a terrible reputation which caused respectable citizens to literally hate him. Jesus chose this man to be his disciple and then, and then he does the audacious thing. He leaves the crowd behind and he follows Levi to his house and he eats dinner with this notorious sinner and his friends. Look at verse 15. As Jesus reclined at table in his house. Now, what does this mean? Tables were only about this high, okay? And they're in a U-shape, a large U-shape. And the guest would sit in the middle and everybody would sit around him and they would recline. They would lay back. There would be pillows like on the floor and they would recline back at the table. They would enjoy. They would hang out. That's what, they had a long dinner. It wasn't like us, right? Pop it out of the microwave, five minutes, back on our phones, right? Back to the TV. It was a long, relaxing dinner. Let's keep reading. And he reclined at table in his house. That's Levi's house. Many tax collectors. Whoa. So now we've got more, a bunch of Levi's. All right. A bunch of wicked dudes, a bunch of hated dudes and sinners, tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples for there were many who followed him. Now that sinners, that word literally means the reprobate. Think of in the Psalms, the wicked, 
Okay, this is a term that's not just like a good old boy, you know, we're all sinners type of thing. This is a person with a terrible reputation who chose not just who occasionally falls short to the law, but who completely lives outside of God's rules of morality and his rules of ethics. Completely lived away from the Torah, rejected the Torah, rejected the law, the Old Testament, rejected it and lived their own way. Okay, these were people that completely disregarded the Jewish way of life. They disregarded God. And Mark, this is interesting to me, in this section of scripture, in four verses, Mark uses that word sinners four times. In the entire book of Mark, he uses that word five times. So four out of the five instances of that word sinners are right here in four short verses. He's trying to get something across to us. Jesus is hanging out with people that should shock us. I don't, I don't know how to illustrate them from our DNA. Mobsters, maybe? Right? See, remember when I said that Jesus preached the gospel and then he displayed the gospel. He lived it out. We're seeing that right here. We're seeing a huge aspect of the gospel being played out in front of our eyes. Jesus is chilling, all right? He's reclined. He's laid back, okay? He's socializing with notorious sinners. He's hanging out with riffraff on their own turf. Not only that, think about this, good Christian folk, Jesus is taking new believers with him into the setting. He's got brand new disciples following him. At least four we've noticed already in the book of Mark. And it seems that Jesus doesn't believe that this environment will somehow corrupt these new believers. This environment of notorious sinners, of feasting and drinking. And he doesn't think it's going to negatively affect the discipleship of these new believers. See, Jesus didn't go, oh, hey boys. There's going to be alcohol and a lot of drinking and bad sinners in here. Hang out right out here. Feed the donkeys. I'm going to go in. I'll be back in a couple hours. Right? He doesn't do that. I'm spiritually mature. I am God's son. I can handle this situation. You're a brand new believer. You're a fool, actually. We're going to see later on. Disciples are all jacked up, just like us. He takes them into this environment. He seems to think this environment is actually necessary for their discipleship. This environment is actually going to encourage them to understand and believe the gospel and live out a new identity in Christ. So he takes them in. They're all socializing. They're all eating and drinking around this meal. And Jesus is the gospel incarnated. His lifestyle portrays the gospel the way that Jesus, he li- the way that he lived, the way that he acted here, he puts the gospel on display. One of the most shocking truths of the gospel he's putting on display, and that's this. God loves sinners. Jesus loves sinners. He enjoys their company. He seeks them out. Jesus eats with them. And Matthew and Luke take it a little farther. They add a little more detail. Matthew and Luke record Jesus eating and drinking alcohol with them, so much so that the, tech, that the Pharisees look at and go, he's a glutton and a drunkard. 
Listen, you don't get called a glutton and a drunkard if you're over there picking at salad and you're sipping water. Okay? You don't get called a glutton and a drunkard. Jesus is eating, he's feasting, and he's drinking with new believers. Does this snapshot of Jesus bother you? Jesus laid back, enjoying a good meal and good wine with bad company? If it does, you're not alone. Look at verse 16. And the scribes of the Pharisees, that's the religious folk, okay? That's the moralistic do-gooders. When the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? This, his, li- his gospel living, what does that mean? Uh, the community is the apologetic of the gospel. People are looking at Jesus' behavior and going, that doesn't make sense. Explain that to us. Jesus' behavior demands a gospel explanation. To eat with these types of people would make Jesus ceremonially unclean. Jesus couldn't go teach in the synagogue after this under the, the law, right? He couldn't. This made him unclean. But Jesus seems to disregard being made unclean, that he can't be made unclean because he's not a sinner. And Jesus has compassion on sinful people. The scribes of the Pharisees here, these were expert interpreters of the Mosaic law. They knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. They were scholars, they were theologians. These were men and women who were working really hard to be on the inside with God, to obey the rules. They knew that any God-fearing Jew would never eat with a tax collector. I'm going to do it. That's like eating with, an, with a member of Al-Qaeda. That's like, a, that's like having someone, having an ISIS member over for brunch. And for those of you, that makes you really uncomfortable. Let me just remind you that an ISIS member wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Right? He's going into the houses. He's persecuting them. He's bringing them out so they could be killed and thrown in jail. Paul, the apostle Paul, Saul, and God stepped in. Right? Pursues sinners. Saves them like that. That's what God can do. And this is where we begin to see what Jesus is up to. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And not only that, why does he pick at the Pharisees? Why does he provoke them? He's provoking them. And later next week, you're going to see. He looks around. He sees. He knows what the Pharisees are going to get mad at. And he still does it. He's provoking them. Why? He's provoking moralists who try to separate the world into good guys and bad guys, into people like me and people like them. He's provoking them, rule followers. And you know, the world's made up of good people and bad people, rule followers and rule breakers. Jesus is provoking that, and his gospel lifestyle provokes this gospel question. Why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? And until you can understand this question, you will never understand Jesus. And until you can answer this question, you're never going to understand the gospel. 
that Jesus eats and drinks on his downtime. Can I say that? Listen, when you go preach a sermon, you just want to hang, you just want to relax, right? You, it, nobody wants to preach a sermon and then go do ministry work right away, right? He preaches a sermon and then he relaxes. He's going out to eat after the sermon with tax collectors and sinners. He's choosing to spend his free time with the outcast, the politically incorrect, social degenerates, non-religious. He's a friend to them. Can I ask you, brother or sister in Christ, how often is this said of you? How often does your dinner table look like this? How often are you invited into the homes of unbelievers and outsiders for dinner? Does it happen regularly? See, to be, a, to be a Christian, right? To believe this gospel of good news that God pursues sinners, that it changes us in a certain type of person. It changes us to be a person like Jesus that pursues sinners, that hangs out with sinners, that has a dinner table that's filled with sinners on the regular. And if our dinner table doesn't look like, it might be because we don't know what this, we don't know the answer to this question. Why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? And we might be believing a false gospel that Jesus didn't come for the lost. He didn't come for sinners. He didn't come for tax collectors. He came for good people like me. Conservative people, buttoned up people. People that got their politics in order. People got their theology in order. People got their morals in order. People like me. Jesus is a lot like me in that way. I think our behavior displays our beliefs. No matter what we say up here, but what we believe down here. Why does Jesus eat with sinners? Now you might be pushing back and say, well, you know what? I think Jesus eats with sinners for their immediate reformation. Jesus eats with sinners because he's only there. He's there to knock some heads and reform their morals. He's there to preach the gospel to them stinking sinners. But we don't have any evidence of that. Jesus doesn't preach to them. He eats and he drinks with them. Jesus is reclined at the table. Think about this. Jesus is relaxed and comfortable in their presence. He's not looking for an opportunity to bewail the dangers of alcohol or empty carbs, okay? He's enjoying it. He's relaxed. So we look at this son of God, this sinless son of God, chilling with notorious sinners. And in our hearts we say, why does he do that? And thankfully, Jesus doesn't leave us guessing. He tells us very clearly. Look at verse 17. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, the religious do-gooders, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous but sinners. 
Jesus looks at the moralistic do-gooders, the buttoned-up and straight-laced, the religious, the conservative, the nationalists, and he says, I came for those who know they're sinful. I'm here for the bad guys and the bad gals. And if you think that you're a pretty good guy or you're a pretty good gal, then you won't get me. You won't understand me. You won't want me. Only those who know their wickedness, know the evilness that, that, that resides in their heart, their thoughts, their desires, the things that we want to do. If we could do, we would do them. Only people that understand their own sinfulness will come to me as their great physician. Listen, this is Romans 9, 30 and 31, visually depicted, okay? Listen to this, Romans 9, 30 and 31. What shall we say then? The Gentiles, the outsiders, who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, they got a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, the insiders, the chosen ones, were per, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. That stumbling stone is Christ. We see the scribes and the Pharisees stumbling over that stumbling stone right now. There is a natural bent to the human heart that seeks a righteousness through obeying rules. We want to justify ourselves through our behavior. We want to separate ourselves from others through our behavior. I'm not like them. They're fill in the blank. I'm not like them. They're, I could go on and on and fill that blank in. This is called self-righteousness. We see this in the mother who lashes out at her child. I can't believe you would do that. How could you? How could you do that? When I was your age, I... She's telling her child, if you were more like me, then you would be righteous like me. If you were more like me, if you were good like me, we'd be all better. This society would be so much better if everybody voted like me or believed like me. Self-righteousness. We see this in the Christian man or the Christian woman who expects young believers to act like mature believers. I can't believe he said that. I can't believe he did that. I can't believe he's going there. Or even worse, who expects unbelievers to act like mature believers. Self-righteousness. Listen to this commentary from Kent Hughes. Listen to this. I'm going to quote it in length here because I think it's so good. Perhaps none of us espouse such pharisaical beliefs. In fact, we loathe them. But many of us live them out nevertheless. We come to Christ and in our desire to be godly, we seek out people like us. Ultimately, we arrange our lives so that we are with non-believers as little as possible. We attend Bible studies that are 100% Christian, a Sunday school that is 100% Christian, prayer meetings that are 100% Christian. We play tennis with Christians and eat dinner with Christians. We have Christian doctors, Christian dentists, Christian plumbers, Christian veterinarians, and even our dogs are Christian. The result is we pass by hundreds without ever noticing them or positively influencing them for Christ. None of us are Pharisees philosophically, but we may be practically. 
Here's the implications. We need to reach out to the people with whom we work. Go to dinner with them. Attend sporting events together. Have them over. We need to extend ourselves to those we know are hurting. Provide a room for an unwed mother. Minister to the multiple cultures around us. Volunteer in the local prisons. Get involved in the community. Even if it means resigning a church job to do it. Jesus said, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. This is an implication of the gospel. Jesus pursued sinners. If I recognize that I'm a sinner and he pursued me, when he saves me, what, it begins to change me into the type of person that is on Jesus' mission and pursues other sinners. If I'm not pursuing other sinners, I'm forgetting the gospel myself. Maybe not up here forgetting, but in my heart, the affection of my heart is forgetting it. Now, change subjects just a little bit. Jesus said he comes to preach the gospel of the kingdom. He's saying, I'm instituting this new world order, this new way of living and being in relationship with God, that eventually this little new kingdom that I'm starting, it will eventually rule the entire world and the new heavens and the new earth that are being recreated, right? This worldwide redemption project, it's starting right here with this new outpost of the kingdom, this new microcosm. He's going to start this new kingdom, right? And look how he begins it. I'll take a fisherman. I'll take a couple fishermen. I'll take a tax collector. All men outside the religious establishment, all men unclean by Jewish laws and customs. He starts, with, he starts to create this new world order with bottom of the barrel sinners. Now, there's this movie, American classic, filmed in 1998 called Deep Impact. If you haven't watched it, don't waste your time. <laughs> I watched it again last night just to be clear on it though. <laughs> in it, after discovering that an asteroid the size of Texas is going to impact Earth in less than a month, NASA he re recruits these men to go up. They're going to try to blow this asteroid up, right? And and it, it does, it's, first attempt doesn't work, so they've had a backup plan. And this backup plan is this, they make this huge this huge, these huge caves. And out of all, everyone in the United States, it's, there's enough room for a, a million people, okay? So just think about this. This is an extinction, they call it an extinction level event. So this asteroid's gonna hit, it's gonna kill everyone on the planet. But they've made this cave where they can get a million people into this cave. Okay? So in, whoever lives in this cave is going to be the new world order when they come out, right? They're going to be the new government. They're going to be what they're going to start the new United States of America with, right? And who do they choose? Well, automatically, the top 20% are automatically chosen. The, world, the, the best scientists, right? Anybody that's got, that does something that nobody else can do, the best and the brightest that America has to offer. And then in the movie, and I just think in real life, it would probably be a lot worse than that. Like, I, I think, really, if you can only take a million people, you're probably going to take 50% of the world's best, best and brightest. But in this movie, they only take 20%, and the other 800,000 is just open for lottery, right? 
a random lottery. Think about that. If you're going to start over, do you want to go to the prisons? I'll get that guy. I like his tattoos. Let's get that guy. What are you in for? Extortion. Yep, come on. Be on my team. You're going to do what they did in Deep Impact, right? Who's the best and the brightest? Who's the smartest? Who's the wealthiest? Who knows how to fix us? Who knows how to rule us? Who are the best and the brightest? That's not what Christ does. This is so upside down. He's starting a new kingdom and he goes to the bottom of the barrel, the outcast, the marginalized. And he says, you, I want you on my team. Follow me. Jesus isn't like us. His gospel is the exact opposite of what humans would come up with. He doesn't come for the best and the brightest, but those who recognize their need for him, those who know they are sinners. Now, some of the best and the brightest minds our world has ever known have recognized their need for him and come to Christ and followed him, responded to the call of Jesus. But this is the upside downness of the kingdom of God. Do you recognize your fallenness? Do you recognize your sinfulness? Do you think in your heart that you're the top 20%? That Jesus is lucky to get you on his team? That, there's a, that's a reality in our hearts, a self-righteousness in our hearts. As I close this morning, I want to talk to two, different, two types of people. First, if you're in here, and you're, you're, honestly, you're not currently following Jesus. I want you to see, up to this point, Jesus has called four fishermen and a tax collector to follow him. Why did they drop everything and follow this guy? Because they knew one thing. They knew they were sick and he was the only one who could heal them. These men recognized their need for a savior and that's that's a gift of the Spirit of God. Fishermen, tax collectors, shepherds, they're all outside the religious establishment. They're all unclean according to the Torah and considered reprobate. And they saw and heard Jesus. Jesus came for me. He came for sinners. That's me. He came for the ones who can't fix themselves. That's me. Listen, if that's you this morning, I want you to know Jesus came for you. And I think in this moment, he's giving you the faith to believe that. I'm a sinner. That's all. I'm a sinner. Christ the Savior. Jesus came for me. Believe it and follow him the rest of your life as the Spirit helps you. And secondly, to those in this room that are believers, you are following Jesus. When Jesus says, follow me, this is the call of discipleship. There's a cost that comes with it. Levi can't be a, <laughs> he can't be a crook anymore, right? He leaves the tax booth. His life change. It's as simple as that. We now follow Jesus. Our lives take their shape from his leading. When he speaks to us and says, that relationship is not godly or honoring me, that is a sinful relationship. Believers don't date unbelievers. 
Our life takes the shape of his leading. How could we say, Jesus, thank you for saving me. Thank you for coming for, to save a sinner like me. And then Jesus says, okay, now I need to lead you in this direction. You go, no. Can't take the reins back from Jesus. Being a disciple is following in his footsteps through the power of the spirit. Where he goes, he leads us. His mission becomes our mission. Our dinner table should look like his dinner table. Our lunch break should look like his lunch break. We should begin to eat with the types of people that he eats with, having coffee with the types of people Jesus would have had coffee with, pursuing outsiders like Christ. Our lives should demand a gospel response like Jesus's. Why do they eat with people like that? Why is their home so open? Why are they so gracious and so forgiving? Why do they have people at their house so much? The only explanation is because Christ has pursued me, a sinner. If you had to do it, if you had it right now, how to test your heart. Let's just test your dinner table. Does <laughs> your dinner table, who are you following? Does your dinner table look more like a Pharisee's? Or does it look more like Christ? Is your dinner table 100% Christian? 100% religious? We could, do, we could go on and on. Right? What's the ethnic diversity of your dinner table? What's the fiscal diversity? Everybody, all everybody middle class, upper middle class, lower middle, everybody the same? See, the gospel comes for sinners. The gospel comes for outsiders and marginalized. And when we believe that, our life begins to take its shape. We talk a lot about, at Sacred City, identities and rhythms, that our identities Christ gives us sheer, just by grace. We're forgiven sons. We're missionaries. We're servants. We're disciples and learners. It's, what, it's who we are. It's all right. Nobody can take this from us. Christ has given it to us as a gift, but our identities create new rhythms in our life. And we've got two really simple rhythms of celebrating and eating. We celebrate things and we eat. Most of us, three meals a day, 21 meals a week. What would it look like for the gospel, your identities as missionaries, to change the way you eat? That could look like one meal out of 21 a week spent with outsiders. No agenda, outsiders. One meal a week with missional community, friends and family, right? Living, this is community and mission lived out in the natural rhythms, natural ways of life. You could go, whatever you like to do, working out, invite a friend. Grocery shopping, invite a friend. Shopping, invite a friend. Golfing, not yet, I know, but invite a friend. Sledding, maybe, I don't know. Invite a friend. Outsiders. Listen, there's this natural, I'm telling you, there's this natural bent in the human heart to accept the gospel and then to fall back into moralism. Read, the, read Galatians. You began this life in the spirit, now you're gonna try to perfect it by works of the flesh. 
When we come to Christ, many of us, we knew we were sinners. But right now, honestly, I heard a, a preacher, a prominent preacher, this week say, I'm not the greatest sinner I know. I know a lot of sinners that sin way more than I do. National, prominent ministry on the radio. I know a lot of sinners that sin more than I do. The Apostle Paul, at the end of his ministry, says, this is what you need to remember. Christ came for sinners, of which I am the foremost. The Apostle Paul thought he was the worst. See, we get pulled into this self-righteousness. The gospel pulls us away. We're sinners saved by grace. And when we get that, we're so much more inviting and compassionate and welcoming and loving to other sinners like us. So, if you're a Christian in here and you're convicted, you might be mad at me right now, you're convicted, you know you don't have that compassion for the outsiders. Would you ask the Spirit as we take communion this morning to bring repentance, to produce repentance in you, to remind you of your sinfulness and Christ's love for you in your sinfulness, that he pursues you in your sinfulness and frees you from it. It's cut the power of sin now. The punishment of sin has been taken care of on the cross and the power of sin has been cut off and one day you'll be free from the presence of sin. You don't have to fear going into these environments with, with notorious sinners where sinning is taking place because the power of the spirit is in you. Repent, believe the gospel, Christians. Unbelievers, embrace the good news that Jesus Christ died for sinners. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this good news to us. We thank you for your grace. What God has ever been so gracious? Is there any better news in all of the world that God, the one who wrote the story, becomes a man and enters into the story and lives the life that none of us can live. The reality is Christ came for sinners and we're all sinners except for Jesus. The one truly righteous man died for many. And we are that many. And we thank you for it. Holy Spirit, would you confirm to us our salvation? Would you pour into, into us the love of God? Would you speak to unbelievers who have became believers in this service, who've embraced Christ by faith in this service, that they are adopted into the family of God, that God loves them and forgives them through the grace of God and the mercy of Jesus Christ. And as we come to partake of the sacrament this morning, would we turn from our self-righteousness, turn from our moralism, and once again be reminded we are destitute without the body and the blood of Christ. We are cut off from salvation outside of Jesus. Jesus is the only reason we're in and we're saved. And we get this hope in this future. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your kindness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.